wish you a happy Resurrection Day, and glad you can join us today, especially you guests that were humiliated by Bill Lamb just a few moments ago. <laughs> Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you came without a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you or near you. Uh, pull out your phone and find one on your phone if you need to, but I encourage you to follow along as uh, we look at this portion about the resurrection of Christ this morning. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11. There's an outline on the back of your bulletin and I encourage you to use that to follow along as well uh, this morning. But let me read our passage uh, as we begin, the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul's letter uh, to the church at Corinth, uh, reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. These are God's very words that he breathed out through his apostles and prophets. May he bless what we've read, and let's ask for his help to understand this portion uh, that we've just read this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray that your spirit would open our eyes. Uh, as Bill asked for that very thing, I ask again that your spirit would uh, quicken us, help us to see not just the printed word, but the very truth on these, uh, on these pages. And Christ Jesus pressed the meaning of this truth into our hearts that we may see and understand and grasp mentally and with our, our understanding, our spiritual hearts, that you indeed rose from the dead. Convince us of this this morning. Strengthen me as I preach. Help my voice and my thoughts to be clear. Savior, we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Author C.S. Lewis, uh, author of uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, which movies perhaps you have seen, also uh, the Christian classic Mere Christianity, which a few of you have read perhaps, 
defined faith in that uh, relatively famous book of his. And he said, now faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. I really like the way he's put this, especially that very first sentence. Now, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted. I like this definition because it's the very thing that the Apostle Paul calls you and me to do in these verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, look at the first two verses again with me. Even though we just read them, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. That phrase in verse 2, hold fast, means to keep something in your possession, much as it sounds, or to retain something in your memory. This is what Paul wants us to do with the resurrection of Christ, to cling to it for dear life, to keep the resurrection of Christ firmly in your mental grip, as it were, to hold fast. Now, why does Paul even need to say something like this? Because there were some in, in the town of Corinth who let their grip on the resurrection start to slip. They had loosened their grip on the resurrection. And you'll see this if you'll glance down to verse 12. They were not keeping it in their possession or their memory because verse 12 says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some were not holding fast. Uh, some were, had begun to say that there was no resurrection. And the consequences are severe because if you say there's no resurrection, if people don't rise from the dead, then Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, as Paul goes on to say in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So these first 11 verses, Paul reviews the evidence for Christ's resurrection. And then these 11 verses, he gives us six reasons to hold fast to the resurrection. These are reasons that you and I need to see uh, as well for skepticism about the bodily resurrection of Christ uh, and outright denial of his resurrection abound in our day. Many doubt that it ever took place. Perhaps even you. If this describes you, I hope to convince you from the word of God that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was a genuine historical event. And if Christ did rise from the dead, uh, the consequences are significant for you and me. If you already believe that Jesus rose from the dead, many of you I know do, I hope that Paul's reasons in these verses strengthen your faith and that you leave today encouraged and built up and more confident than ever 
that the resurrection of Christ was a genuine historical event that took place in history. Well, so then why should we hold fast to the resurrection? Why should we keep it in our possession? Why should we retain it in our memory? Why should we cling tightly to the truth that Jesus rose from the dead? There are six reasons in the verses. I'd like to show them to you. The first reason that Paul gives is because uh, it is a crucial part of being a Christian. The first reason we, we cling to the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus is because belief in the resurrection is a non-negotiable part of being a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian this morning, you must believe in the resurrection of Christ. And Paul makes this clear uh, through three statements. Three statements he makes that makes it clear uh, to be a Christian is to believe in the resurrection. Uh, we see it in Paul's preaching to begin with. Paul reminds them of the message he, he had preached to them. Uh, remind people at, at Corinth of the content of his message. Again, I'm, I'm reading verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. What exactly did Paul preach to the church at Corinth? What was his message? There's, there's no need to guess. He spells it out for us down in verse 3. Glance down to verse 3 with me where he says, uh, he describes the content of his message. Uh, and, and his message, he says here in verse 3, uh, as many good sermons, uh, although mine takes, uh, I have six points today, which is really nothing more than twice three. Uh, so uh, Paul's sermon had, Paul's message rather, had three points to it. He preached that Christ died for our sins. Uh, verse three begins, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul came to Corinth, he proclaimed that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. Christ took our place on the cross and took the punishment for sin that you and I deserved. He, he died on the cross for our sins. His second point was that Christ was buried. We see this in verse 4, that he was buried. Paul proclaimed that Jesus actually died on the cross. He didn't merely pass out from his wounds, only to be revived later in the cool of the garden tomb. Some promoted that theory uh, back in the early part of the last century. It was called the swoon theory. Jesus really died and was buried according to Jewish custom. So Paul preached Secondly, that Christ was buried. And then third, that he rose on the third day. Verse 4 continues. It says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul proclaimed that God raised Christ's body from the dead. Literally, really came back to life. Physically came alive again. He rose from the dead. That, that was the essence of his message that he preached to the church at Corinth. That's what... Paul proclaimed that Jesus died, was buried, and rose. Well, how did they take this? How did they respond to it? Well, we see that next in what I've called their posture or their attitude toward his preaching. 
very clear what their attitude was. Uh, Paul describes how they responded in three ways. Uh, he says, first of all, they received it. They received it. And we see this again all the way back at the beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Received means that they accepted Paul's proclamation as the truth. They received Paul's statements about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as authoritative teaching. They accepted it as the very word of God. They received it. He goes on to say not only did they receive it, they took a stand on it. As verse 1 goes on, which you received in which you stand. Uh, this, uh, uh, in other words, they didn't waffle on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They stood their ground on that truth. They didn't waver. They remained firmly planted in the truth that Paul proclaimed to them. They took a stand on what he proclaimed to them. And lastly, Paul says that they were being saved by that. Verse 2, and by which you are being saved. They were being rescued from the power of sin and the righteous judgment of God by their firm belief in what Paul had preached to them. Their firm belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ rescued them from slavery to sin and the wrath of God on the day of judgment. They were being saved by his preaching through personal faith in Christ. That's their posture. That's their attitude toward what he proclaimed to them. They, they uh, received it. They took a stand on it. And they were being saved by it. That's all well and good. But Paul goes on to add a condition to their firm belief in his preaching. Paul adds that... Uh, their firm belief must be accompanied by their perseverance. In other words, they must continue to stand firm in the gospel that he proclaimed. They, they must hold fast to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And again, I'm looking at verse 2, and it goes on to say this, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. That phrase, hold fast, is what I was talking about just a, a moment ago. Again, hold firmly in your possession. Retain in one's memory to stick to something. In other words, they must cling to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ just like C.S. Lewis described in Mere Christianity. Regardless of their shifting moods, Regardless of their various emotional states, they had to hold fast to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, never letting them out of their grip. It goes without saying that they held fast no matter which way the winds of culture blew as well. When skepticism and doubt arose, as it did in our country so long ago, you know, <laughs> unbelief is nothing new. Can I just... You know, it's amazing that somebody suddenly uh, grows up in the church and suddenly outright says, ha, I don't believe it anymore. And like, wow, that's new. Uh, it's as old as time itself. Uh, they were saying it back in King David's day. The fool has said in his heart, and I'll skip that phrase, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So if you're here today in unbelief, and you thought you were being original, 
you are just the biggest copycat there ever was. Uh, because people have been denying things like this for time out of mind. Um, regardless of what wins the culture bl blows, they were called to persevere in this, to cling to it. Keep it in your grip. Uh, keep it in your memory. Uh, to not let go the consequences of it, of letting it slip like they had begun to do are significant. And because it says right at the very end of verse 2, look down at your Bible. It says, uh, unless you believed in vain. It's a terrible phrase. To let go of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was to believe in vain. To, to allow one of these to slip through your fingers was to believe to no effect. To release your grip on the resurrection was to demonstrate that, that you were not a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And, and whatever happened to you back whenever, at VBS or I don't know, and you, you grow up and you kind of become sophisticated and you let these things slip from your grasp, maybe the resurrection didn't happen, and Paul says, if, if, if you let that slip, you've believed in vain. And whatever happened to you back then was to no effect. It's really quite, quite serious. And so this is why I say that the resurrection is a crucial part of being a Christian. It's non-negotiable. And Romans 10 affirms this. The Word of God tells us there that the belief in the resurrection is, is a necessary condition to be saved. Uh, listen to Romans 10. It says in Romans 10, whoops, let me back up. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hear what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth and to us. We must hold fast to the resurrection because to release your grip and let go is to believe in vain. It is a crucial part of being a Christian. It is non-negotiable. Remember after 9-11, the phrase thrown out by many government officials was, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Now, they may have said that before then, but, but that's when I started hearing the phrase, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And then it's on TV now. You hear everybody, every cop show sometime when there's a hostage situation, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, we should take this attitude toward the resurrection of Christ. We don't negotiate about the resurrection. We, it's not up for debate. Simply not, as well as many other things that accompany saving faith in Christ. The resurrection is, is not a disputable matter. What version of the Bible you use? <laughs> we can talk about that all day long. That's, as long as you're reading the real thing, then that's okay. Uh, the deity of Jesus, that he was actually God, that he paid in our place uh, our penalty on the cross, that he rose from the dead. We don't, we don't those things don't even come up for discussion because those must be. It is a crucial part of what it means to be a Christian. There's another reason we must hold fast to the resurrection. It's because the resurrection is a cardinal doctrine. 
Now, when I say cardinal doctrine, I don't mean that somebody from uh, the Roman Catholic Church came up with it. And I don't mean that it has anything to do with a baseball team from St. Louis or a football team from Arizona. Whether they hold this, this view or not, I have no idea. But we use the cardin when we use the term cardinal, this is what we mean when it comes to the resurrection. Uh, of basic importance, main, chief, primary. For example, a cardinal principle like the resurrection. When, when I call the resurrection a cardinal doctrine, what I mean is that it is absolutely vital to the Christian faith. It is a crucial part of being a Christian, but it's a cardinal doctrine of our faith. Paul brings this out in verse 3. Uh, we've already heard Paul describe the message he preached that Christ died for our sins, was buried, uh, was raised on the third day. Now look at what he says about those three things. Notice the place Paul gives them in verse 3. It says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's that phrase at the beginning of verse 3, as of first importance, it indicates that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is central to be, being a Christian. We've, we've already spoken of that somewhat. The truth of the gospel, including the resurrection, is of foremost importance. In fact, one scholar writing years ago put it like this, foremost in importance, the doctrine of the resurrection is primary and cardinal, central and indispensable. And why is that? Why is the resurrection of Jesus of foremost importance? Because, friend, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is worthless. Those aren't my words. Those are, those are Paul's words breathed out through the Holy Spirit. And he says this, he just comes out and says it. Beginning in verse 12, and I want to read verse 12 again and read just a little past that. And you'll hear what a, what a cardinal doctrine this is. And Paul says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who are asleep, uh, then those also who have fallen asleep, that is, died, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you are here for no point today. This gathering is futile if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. 
because he did not conquer sin and death on the cross if he didn't rise from the dead. His resurrection proved that his payment for sin was acceptable to the Father. And if, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, sin was not conquered. We're dead in our sins, and there's no hope of eternal life. And this is why. You see, we must hold fast to the resurrection. It's because the Christian faith rests on the bodily, bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. It's a cardinal doctrine, central doctrine of the Christian faith. And so John MacArthur makes this comment. Just as a heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. We hold fast to the resurrection the way C.S. Lewis described because it's a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. There's a third reason we hold on to the resurrection. The third reason we hold on to the resurrection is because it concurs with prophecy. It agrees with the Old Testament scriptures. Scripture foretold that Christ would rise from the dead. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were described in the Old Testament 700 to 1,000 years before they took place. For example, the death of Jesus was foretold in the Old Testament. And perhaps one passage that describes this the most clearly is Isaiah 53. Perhaps you're familiar with these words. I read these uh, Friday night at our Good Friday service. And part of that, that wonderful passage says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. Written Hundreds of years before the event occurred, that clearly describes Christ's substitution for sinners on the cross. David, writing in Psalm 22, describes um, the, in vivid detail the form of execution. Uh, even before that form of execution had been invented by the Roman government. And so David uh, says in Psalm 22... Uh, this, is, this would be Christ speaking. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And so what I want you to see is, is Christ's death by crucifixion and his substitution uh, agreed, concurred, was in step with Old Testament prophecy. 
Uh, and this is clearly stated in verse 3, again verse 3, yes, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. His death was foretold. But not just his death, because his resurrection was also foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, verse 4 carries this idea that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So uh, in Psalm King, uh, in Psalm uh, 16, King David wrote these words that refer to the resurrection. And, 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 and let me read this first and then go on to explain what he's saying here. But Psalm 16, David writes this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These words describe David's confidence in being in the Lord's presence after he dies. Now, in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter took these words and said they refer to far more than just David's confidence. It was an event that took place uh, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Peter quoted these same verses from Psalm 16 and went on to explain to the crowd assembled in front of him that these were a prophecy of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Listen to, to what he says. Brothers, I, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so Peter interprets these words for us and tells us that David's words are actually a prophecy looking forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So not only did the way Jesus died agree with the Old Testament Scriptures, his resurrection also concurred with the Old Testament Scriptures. Think about what it means for this to, uh, to happen as it, was, as it was foretold. You know, you and I deal with prophecy every single day of the week. I'll put it in quotes. It's called the weather forecast. And sometimes my buddy Bradnitz, we're friends on Facebook, don't you know? <laughs> sometimes Brad and the rest of his crew, God love them, they get it wrong, don't they? This happened. It was predicted, foretold, and it took place just the way the Old Testament said it would. That's huge. And there were multiple prophecies about Christ 
the, the statistics regarding prophecies about Jesus Christ and their fulfillment are overwhelming. It is staggering to see what they said and what happened to that one man in history. The statistics of one person fulfilling those prophecies are astronomical, but he did. We hold fast to the resurrection because, third, it concurs, agrees, is in step with what the Old Testament said would happen. There's a fourth reason why we must keep it in our clutches. And the fourth reason is because it was confirmed by eyewitnesses. Uh, the resurrection was confirmed by a large number of eyewitnesses. Uh, Christ appeared to five different people or groups. Uh, it says here, first of all, that he appeared to Peter in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, uh, which uh, means rock. Cephas is Aramaic for Peter. And Bible scholars aren't sure when exactly this meeting between Peter and the Lord took place. It was sometime after he appeared to Mary and before he met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Most likely appearing to Peter because of his great love for him and to reassure this disciple who had just denied him three times. And then second, the Lord appeared to the twelve, it says next in verse 5. Uh, it continues then to the twelve. Uh, John and Luke tell us that this meeting took place on the evening of the resurrection. Uh, the remaining disciples had gathered in a locked room that night, and it was the, then the risen Christ appeared among them, showing them the wounds in his hands and feet and side. Then it says, thirdly, that he appeared to 500 in verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I don't know exactly when this took place either. Uh, scholars believe it might have been in Galilee where Jesus had called his disciples to meet him. That would be Matthew 28, 16. These are, are important, these eyewitnesses, for the sheer number. Amongst other things skeptics have come up with about the resurrection of Christ, they suggested that Peter and the twelve saw Christ because, because they wanted to see him so desperately. It was all psychological. But what they really saw was nothing more than a hallucination. What appeared to them to be Christ. You can, you can try to run with that if you want. It would be extraordinarily difficult that 500 people could all have the same hallucination. And further... Peter indicates that many of this number were still alive. He says uh, some have fallen asleep and some haven't. Ask him yourself, he seems to be saying. Fourth, uh, Christ appeared to James. Uh, verse 7 says, then he appeared to James. This would be James, probably James's half-brother, the James that wrote the book of James in the New Testament, the one who became a leader in the early church. Then it says, fifthly, that he appeared to the apostles uh, after his resurrection. Verse 7 concludes like this, then to all the apostles. That's not a single meeting. Uh, Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus met with his men for a period of 40 days before he ascended to heaven. 
So fifth, uh, the Lord appeared to all of the apostles. We hold fast to the resurrection because it was confirmed by a wide variety and number of eyewitnesses. Such attestation caused one attorney to say these. This was some time ago in England. Sir uh, Edward George Clark uh, commented on these eyewitness accounts of Scripture. And he said, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of these evidences for the events of the first Easter day. For me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I've secured a, a verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class, and as a lawyer I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. So in his legal opinion, Sir Edward said long ago that the eyewitnesses accounts, the eyewitness accounts are credible and reliable. We hold fast to the resurrection because it was confirmed by eyewitnesses. I, I, I hope that registers somewhere with you that, that this is not just a meaningless fact, but that what I've been saying up here for the last 22 years has been substantiated by other human beings who actually saw those events take place. It's significant. Well, there's a fifth reason, and the fifth reason is that the resurrection changes the lives of those who believe. Some say this is the strongest evidence of the resurrection of them all. Proof of the resurrection can be found in, in how radically transformed Christ's followers were. Uh, you can see this in, in the Apostle Peter denying Jesus Christ in the courtyard of the high priest, and yet standing up and speaking in front of a crowd on the day of, uh, the, um, the, the day of Pentecost. Peter and others, and one special eyewitness was Paul himself. Listen to Paul describe his, his life before Christ in verse 8. He says, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. As to one untimely born, as you see that in verse 8, it's an unusual phrase, unexpected to find it here. It refers to a fetus that's born before its time. Uh, a child born before it came to full term, a premature birth, we would say. It paints a picture of a baby incapable of sustaining life on its own. And while this perhaps is not as significant to you and me, we live in an age of astounding medical breakthroughs, one of which is the incredible care that a hospital can give to a, a baby born prematurely. And because of that level of medical care that a baby receives in our time, most of those children go on to live completely normal lives. But that wasn't the case in Paul's day. 
A baby born prematurely would have no hope of survival. This is how Paul describes his spiritual condition at the time when Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He had no hope of spiritual life without God's divine intervention. And he goes on to explain why he had no hope in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He, he had no hope. He was like a, a, a premature baby because he had been militantly opposed to God. Uh, the other eyewitnesses we've read about were, were, were glad to see Jesus after his resurrection and welcomed his appearance. But the Apostle Paul wasn't looking for Christ at all. He was, he was opposed to Christ. He was doing everything possible to persecute his followers and, and completely wipe out the early church. But look at what happens. Uh, he goes on to describe his life after Christ in verse 10. Look at what the risen Christ meant to Paul in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He was changed from Saul the Pharisee to Paul the Apostle. He was transformed from someone radically opposed to the news about Christ to someone who worked tirelessly to proclaim the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. His life took a dramatic turn when Christ, the risen Christ, appeared to him. And that's true of many of you sitting here this morning. Christ has done something similar in your life. He's changed your life just as radically as he changed Paul's. Some of you were running as hard and fast as you could away from Jesus Christ. You found yourselves now running toward him and working just as tirelessly as Paul did to proclaim the news of, of the risen Lord. And so one pastor concludes writing this, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. It was the resurrection which transformed Peter's fear into courage and James' doubt into faith. It was the resurrection which changed the Sabbath into Sunday and the Jewish remnant into the Christian church. It was the resurrection which changed Saul the Pharisee into Paul the Apostle and turned his persecuting into preaching. We hold fast to the resurrection because it changes the lives of those who believe. Of those who believe. We find solid proof for the resurrection and the fact that your life is different now than it was before you met Christ. And because of transformed lives, we hold on. Lastly, uh, and finally, uh, we see that the resurrection was a consistent theme of the early church, commonly and consistently taught uh, throughout those early days. We see this simply in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, meaning the other apostles, so we preach. This is how we preach. It's part of our message. And so you believed. Whether I preached it, or whether Peter preached it, 
the common theme in all of our teaching was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The consistent message of every true apostle, prophet, or pastor in the early church was that Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. John MacArthur says, without exception, the preaching and teaching in the early church centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is the, the sixth reason why we hold fast. So, do you know the hope of the resurrection? Or are you perhaps uh, still skeptical? Do you know the hope of eternal life through the resurrection, or have you yet to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord? Or perhaps you're one of those so-called Christians who pays lip service to the resurrection, but it sure doesn't mean anything. It, it might as well not exist for the attention you give it. And what I pray these six reasons show you is that people saw Christ risen again. People saw him die. And people saw him alive. And we haven't even begun to talk about the Roman soldiers and their witness to the death and resurrection of Christ. There is abundant evidence for you, my friend, that this is not a myth, but that it, this is a genuine fact of history, that Jesus died, was buried, and that God brought him back to life. And the question is, what are you going to do with that fact of history? If you're a skeptic, I can point you to a mountain of things uh, with further proofs. Well, I'll reduce it from a mountain to one or two books. There's plenty out there that gives sustained, intelligent thought to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to pursue it. Talk to me following the service if you need to. Email me through the week. Many of you, and maybe most of you, I don't know, but a good number of you here already believe in the resurrection. And my encouragement to you is hold fast. Cling tightly. Keep it uh, in your memory. Uh, keep it in your possession. Because for you too, this evidence of His resurrection encourages you and you can take heart. I believe in something real, something that happened in history. This is not a myth. It's factual and I can, I can bank my faith in it. And you can rejoice in your Savior who rose from the dead. So, why hold fast? Why keep it in your possession? Why cling tightly to this truth that Jesus rose again? It's a crucial part of being a Christian. Uh, without this, you can't be a Christian. 
It's a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. The Christian faith rises and falls on whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. Uh, it concurs with Old uh, Testament prophecy. It changes lives. It's a consistent theme in the teaching of the early church. Uh, these and one more that I've left out. I have only have five written down here. But you wrote it down. You took good notes. May, may God grant us the kind of faith that C.S. Lewis talked, the art of holding on to things that your reason has once accepted in spite of our changing moods. Heavenly Father, give us grace. If anyone here is a skeptic this morning, please convince them with your truth. Uh, not my words, but your words. Let it uh, sway their minds and hearts. Uh, to trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And Father, strengthen the saints who already hold fast to this truth and help us to cling tightly still uh, or cling more tightly still to this great truth. Savior, thank you that you are alive and live evermore and sustain us with your all-sufficient grace. Uh, we do pray that by your Spirit who lives in us, you would give us grace to hold fast. Savior, we ask in your name. Amen.